Lakeside is pleased to sponsor this exciting broadcast featuring Dr. Sandra Bloom and Sarah Yonassi on Voice America. Welcome to Creating Presence with your hosts, Dr. Sandra Bloom and Sarah Yanisi. Over the next hour, you'll learn about the processes that steer our hearts and minds and how to improve our collective social health. Welcome to Creating Presence. I'm Dr. Sandra Bloom, and I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Yanisi. Hi, everyone. Sarah and I have developed an organizational intervention to help organizations integrate trauma-informed practice. And we use an acronym uh, called PRESENCE, and it stands for partnership and power, reverence and restoration, emotional wisdom and empathy, safety and social responsibility, uh, embodiment and enactment, nature and nurture, culture and complexity, and emergence and evolution. In this podcast, we're looking at each of the letters in the acronym week by week and talking with experts and thought leaders in a wide variety of areas to really help us expand our thinking and our work to improve collective social health. And this week, we're focusing on the first E, which is emotional wisdom and empathy. And we're going to take a deeper dive into this topic with the social health focus on education. And by developing more emotional responsiveness in emotional setting and in educational settings, sorry, we we hope to really expand our point of view about that. A central idea for this week is looking at the capacity of educational systems to develop what Sandy and I call emotional wisdom and what it looks like when they do. What we mean by emotional wisdom is the confluence of three things, emotional intelligence, empathic concern, and positive relational experiences. And schools and educational settings are really perfect uh, crucibles for this um, because of timing and setting. Children are really just learning about emotion management, how to recognize their own emotions, how to recognize the emotions of others, And school is a place um, where they have the opportunity to build emotional intelligence, practice and experience empathy, at least we hope that that's the experience they'll have, um, and where they're constantly having relational experiences, both with peers and with people in authority. The other thing that children do is that they will reenact through their behavior whatever problems, including traumatic experiences that they've had, but that are really not fully understood and and usually not really known by people in the educational setting. So staff need to be able to read behavior and help children find words instead of punishing them, because that's useless. Uh, Although it still means that there need to be clear boundaries and consequences, but those are not the same thing as punishment. So helping finding words for really bad experiences 
is consistent with the, the, the goals of education to promote learning and better use of, of the whole educational experience. So we're going to expand this conversation with our guests, two people who are shaping trauma-informed educational services um, and who are going to share their own perspectives on what's happened and what needs to change in those settings. So I want to welcome Jake Lucas. He is the CEO of Novalis Trust in Stroud, Gloucestershire, Gloucestershire, United Kingdom, a residential program for children. Welcome, Jake. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. And we're also happy to have with us Tim McGurk, who is the principal of the Cotswold Chine School and the William Morris School mm. at Novalis Trust. So welcome to the show, Tim. Hello, Sandy. Thanks for having me. Our focus this week is on emotional wisdom and empathy, and we ask both of you to be here to describe the multiple ways that trauma-informed attachment-based knowledge has really become vital to your work with children and young people. We have talked a lot, Sandy, about this idea of um, work with people being emotional labor, right? Using um, our relationships and ourselves instead of, you know, kind of in contrast to physical labor. Um, and I know from my work uh, with both of you that your programs really reflect this understanding of emotional labor. Uh, Jake and Tim, could you tell us a bit about your programs at Novalis Trust and what distinguishes them from other educational settings? Yeah, sure. Um, so, Cotswold Chine School, where Tim and I are based mainly, was founded in 1954. Um, so it's got a long history. And it was founded on the educational principles of somebody called Rudolf Steiner. And Rudolf Steiner was an interesting person because although he, he was a philosopher and a doctor, um, he also was very child and person centered and ahead of his time. He said quite interestingly that he felt the best therapy for children was education and that the teacher's goal is to find the talents or the inner gifts of every child to try to facilitate that. Um, and so really, um, you know, that's our approach at Coxwell Chine School and we're very much focused on the therapeutic side of things within the environment and a real focus on uh, positive relationships. Um, we needed Sandy's work to help us back in 2012. Um, our children and Tim, Tim, this was a time when Tim was a class teacher. So Tim will be able to support me with this. We were making what we felt was great progress for children in their education and a sense of safety. But there were certain children that we do, we were just not succeeding with. They whatever we were trying to do just didn't seem terribly effective. And it was suggested to me that these children were in fact traumatized um, because of their early adverse experiences and things that had happened to them. And so I kind of said, we need to know more about this stuff. We don't know enough about this. Um, and luckily somebody put me onto Sandy and Sandy's work. So I reached out to Sandy in America across the pond. And I said, can you help us? When are you in the UK next? We want to come and hear you talk. And Sandy is very generous and says, and we started a nice conversation. 
over emails. And then we invited Sandy over and she came and began to talk to us about trauma theory and how we really need to understand what's happening within our children and our staff team. And so that was a major shift for us moving forward. We really began began to understand um, what was happening with these children and, and what had happened to them. So, um, and Tim, you're a class teacher at the time, so you'll kind of remember when we first learned about trauma theory, I would say. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, if you take something like difficulty for children who are affected by trauma, such as safety, um, we start to do things different really, really quickly. So as simple things like getting a welcome right when the children came into the classroom or, or looking to promote consistency of and routines um, a little bit more than, than we used to. Um, role role modelling sort of um, safe behaviour in the classroom as a as a teaching pair. All of these things as educators that you wouldn't normally be trained to do even as a classroom teacher. And if you take another difficulty, uh, like you suggested earlier, Sandy, like relationships, just deciding rather than teaching all the time or trying to teach all the time with these children, just finding some time to listen to them and make time to listen and um build relate you know build relationships through games or you know sort of look for opportunities to support each other these were all things that as educators don't didn't really come natural to us um and it's something that we have to change over over a long period of time wouldn't you say jay yeah i'd agree and um for most of the children that come to us you know we they've tried lots of other schools they've tried lots of other places and it's just not worked for them and so they come to us and many of them feel attached to the teachers um, and they, they may not have felt terribly attached to other adults when they were young. And so teachers, not just teachers, actually, members of the school community can become their key safety attachment figures. And that always amazes me that for a child at our school, because the children are residential primarily, as well as going to school, they live with us, um, their key attachment figure may well be a domestic member of staff. It could be the cook. It may, in some cases, it's the maintenance guys. Um, it's a gardener. Um, they go off and talk to the gardeners about their problems and they kind of express how frustrating they feel in the classrooms. So we realised quite early on that the whole organisation needed to be trauma-informed um, right the way through the staff team, not just teachers, but everybody that worked for us had to understand that the children may reach out to them and what they would do about it. And I guess as a as an, an educator, then it, our job became more supporting teachers to develop and change um, mm. to how we wanted them to work with the children. Um, because naturally, you want relationships with the children, but you also need educators who are tuned with them and are able then to meet their needs and contain those emotions and co-regulate them and understand what's happening in their behaviour. So. And um, that is a whole way of working um, as educators, for sure. Yeah, the, I think uh, certainly over here, there's this kind of misperception that somehow you could educate children without paying any attention to the mental health needs. And, you know, what we're finding out is that it's it's impossible. You can't, you cannot really teach children if they can't pay attention or they can't regulate their emotions. But um, you know, that's over here. Have you found similar when you have to deal with other educational institutions that your kids may be going back to? Have you found 
that you could translate the work that you've been doing for them? Yeah, I think so. I think the biggest challenge for us, Tim, I'm not sure if you'd agree, was um, we can have a very trauma-informed and trauma-responsive teaching team, but our regulators would come in and they would observe the lessons, and in this country that's Ofsted, and they're not trauma-informed. So they have no insight that their presence in the classroom is causing a stress response in anybody. So they're a stranger, often in a suit and tie, representing authority. They come in the room, they don't often talk, and they're observing the lesson. The teacher feels anxious, the teacher feels stressed, they can't access the teaching part of their brain. The kids feel the same, they feel stressed, there's a stranger in the room, they feel unsafe. And then this stranger just watches the lesson, leaves the room and later feeds back that the, the children aren't learning anything or that they didn't, uh, that the teacher wasn't terribly creative. We have no awareness whatsoever that they have affected the thing they're observing. Um, so I'm really keen on promoting a trauma-informed, responsive handbook or training program for regulators in this country so they know what they're seeing. Um, it's a real challenge. Um, I don't know if you'd agree with that, Tim, but it's very difficult. Yeah, I'd agree, I'd, I'd agree to help help the regulator understand what's happened to the children is a challenge. Um, and that's something that we had to focus on so that they could un understand more exactly what we were doing in the classroom. And I suppose the other challenge is creating space for teachers to be trauma-informed in the classroom. So giving them space to focus on learning through relationships, giving them space to relate and have mutual enjoyment for learning from each other, um, rather than just, you know, the old fashioned, get out the textbooks, let's work through our math or our, our English, because um, that's the pressure that as an educator you're sometimes under, creating spaces that contradicts the way that the teachers have been trained um, was a was also a challenge initially. Mm. Um, so, you know. You were you were all so far uh, in advance, I think, of so many pieces of the system in getting the importance of the adverse childhood experiences study and the implications of that for education and um and how important it is, just what you were just talking about, that everybody in the system, from the gardener, as you mentioned, Jake, to the to the regulators, that everybody has to be really trauma-informed to have a, a system that's really okay. Yeah, and I can kind of illustrate that with a very short story that uh, we had one teenage guy that we were considering not, we, we couldn't keep hold of him. He was too difficult, his placement was at risk. And he was really challenging with the teachers. Nobody could get through to him and he'd often storm out the classroom and things like that. And one of our gardeners came up to us lunchtime and said, look, I've heard that, let's call him John. I've heard that John's placement might be at risk. Um, well, um, John talks to me in the garden and it would be a real tragedy if he left this place because this school means the world to him. He absolutely loves everybody here. He's frightened of being asked questions in the classroom and he's really worried about it. And, uh, you know, he's just he's just worried about making mistakes in front of his classmates. So could you just hang on to him a little bit? This was from one of our gardeners. And we got the gardener involved and John would talk to the gardener during break times and stuff. And that whole team around 
he just saved his placement. He then stayed for another couple of years and moved on to college. But without that insight from a gardener, he said, look, I talked to him. He'll be fine. Um, we would never have known. The teachers Beautiful. would never have known. That's a so, great example. Thanks so much, Jake. Um, and we want to thank you for listening to Creating Presence. Coming up after the break, we'll continue our discussion with Jake Lucas and Tim McGarrick. We'll be right back after this message. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. If you are a professional who would like to know more about how to provide care for individuals who have experienced trauma and adversity, Lakeside Global Institute can provide you with one of two intensive certification courses. You can be certified as a trauma-sensitive professional, which is a 50-hour online training experience. Or, for a deeper experience, you can become a Lakeside Global Institute Certified Trauma-Competent Professional through a live Zoom process that is 75 hours of well-researched and practically applied training. Lakeside Global Institute provides professionals with the highest level of training sophistication and integrity for you to be proficient in trauma-responsive care. You can learn more by going to lakesidetraining.org for more information. Lakeside your resource for trauma-responsive care. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Welcome back to Creating Presence. Sandy, Sarah, and their guests will discuss strategies and innovative practices for restoring our collective social health. Welcome back to Creating Presence. I'm Dr. Sandra Bloom. I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Yanisey. And we're talking with our guests, Jake Lucas and Tim McGurk, who work at one, Jake is the CEO, and Tim is the principal of two schools at Novalis Trust in the United Kingdom. And we're talking to them about creating trauma-informed educational systems really focused on emotional wisdom and empathy. I do a lot of the coaching for creating presence. And one of the things that um, I have found really helpful is suggesting um, and partnering with educators uh, to really explore a better understanding for their students about what triggers might be, how different students cope, what their um what, what responses might be most useful when students are engaging in difficult behaviors or experiencing triggers. What are some of the insights that you have about what it means to embed empathy-oriented, attachment-based, and trauma-informed knowledge into classrooms and administrative practices? I think um, one of the best decisions I ever made was some years ago were, was where I... Um, I arranged for us to have air conditioning put in the classrooms. And what had happened over time was that the classroom windows were being secure because the, there was a, a risk of the children, you know, falling out of windows or whatever. That meant that there was no air in the classrooms. That meant that it was hot and stuffy in the summer and the children were getting hot. The teachers were getting hot and bothered. Um, 
that it was coming out in their behavior. They were frustrated with one another. So we literally put air conditioning in the classrooms and just cooled the whole temperature right down. We then went for neutral colors. We didn't have any bright colors. We don't have too much on the walls. And we kind of just really made it a really lovely environment to be in. So that low arousal environment was where we went. And once we established that sense of physical safety and comfort, if you like, um, we found that, that everybody's arousal level just came right down. Um, and then we moved on to changing behavior. So we talked to our staff, let's walk around the school. Let's be quiet around the school. Children are learning. Let's not just open a classroom door and and a child panics because the door slams because of something that's happened to them in their early childhood. So don't use your phones. Don't walk around making a noise, you know, keep it nice and calm. And we kind of started to promote this culture, this low arousal therapeutic culture. And it made a huge difference. And it really helped people like you, Tim, I would say, trying to contain those classrooms and keep people calm. Yes, definitely. And, and also, being able to be in a position where we actually were able to sort of take time to build relationships first and foremost, which contradicts, I don't know what it's like in the US, but that contradicts all your teacher training that you have you would have where you're not supposed to smile until Christmas when you get a new class <laughs> and, and you, you know you've got to really lay down the law and things like this. Whereas our focus is actually finding the time to be almost like attachment based education in a way where you did take the time to build those relationships. And one of those things that we did instantly to support that was we we called each other by our first names. So it, it broke down that barrier between that sort of hierarchy of status, if you like, but also supported a, a more of a, a connection with the teacher. Um, and, it, and it also meant that we we designed our education around the children rather than big groups or 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 big classes so we end so we ended up with a class group then that you you stay with and you be with and you build a relationship with um and you go through good times and you go through difficult times um and and i think learning through that relationship really really supported us as well as the environment like you say jake yeah and i think the focus on um keeping the classrooms calm, um, understanding. We almost had to teach the teachers to become detectives in a way, to to begin to think what's behind the behaviour. So rather than talk to me about the behaviour, what's the story behind the behaviour? What's happening behind the behaviour? Um, and, you know, once they started to be curious and try to understand that a little, little bit, they could then start to validate some feelings about how the children were feeling um, and to say, look, OK, you know, we, we can see this is difficult. I'm, I often talk to groups of staff and I say I'm absolutely amazed and massively impressed that some of our children actually bothered to come to school because their early experiences have been so challenging you know, the majority of our children of AC scores are four and above, you know, uh, developmental trauma, all sorts of difficulties. And yet they, they can be motivated to come to, to school, to want to be educated, to want to feel connected and to just better themselves. That massively improves, um, impresses me every every time. And so, you know, we, we, we then developed um, within that relationship something called our time in approach. So... A lot of our children have been sent out of the classrooms from other places. They're not in the classroom with the social group. They get sent out into corridors and things like that. So we reverse that. 
And we we talk to the teachers about time in, not time out. Okay. And so our children all know that they can book a time in meeting with anybody in the organization. Doesn't matter. Could be a domestic member of staff, a teacher, a manager, a social worker, a therapist. It doesn't matter. They book a time in meeting and that meeting will happen and those children can talk about whatever they want. And some children book time in meetings with the therapy dogs. Um, they book time in meetings with everybody. And, you know, Tim's very popular with, with time in meetings, although he's not teaching in the classrooms anymore. People will book time in meetings with Tim so they can talk about their education and things, and and myself included. So that's something we're really, really proud of. Um, yeah, yeah, and I guess what you're giving an example of there is a system or a procedure that we've changed to promote positive relationships rather than damaged relationships. Um, but it also gives you that opportunity to um, explore the feelings around behaviour. So over time, we kind of ripped up the old behaviour policy um, and sort of rewrote it that, to sort of um, ensure that it's positive and restorative and supportive and trauma-informed. I mean, that's something that um, we've kind of enjoyed doing, actually. Mm. Would that be fair to say, Jake? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it strikes me too that it, the time in meeting is proactive, whereas timeouts are almost always reactive and usually a lot of negative emotion attached. So like a real opportunity to create that contrast. Yeah, and it's great. Um, within, within our organization, nearly every um, leader or what you would call a senior administrator still works with children and families. So myself included and Tim, lots of us, we all still work with children and families. And that just has such a sobering, grounding experience. But it also shows the rest of the team, hey, we're in this with you. Okay, it's not off you go. It's come on, we can do this together, right? And people really like that because they feel held, they feel involved, and they feel, feel that you're being authentic, that you're not just asking people to do something that you wouldn't try to do yourself. And I get a hard time off kids like everybody else, but that's okay. You know, these kids have been through a lot. So I can show some empathy. I can validate how somebody feels and we can then build on that. So, yeah. Jake, because I've known you guys now since 2012, I know that you have have really committed to a number of um, learning opportunities for your staff for yeah. your administrative staff and your teaching staff and your residential staff. And I just thought it might, it might be good for people to know all that, that you've taken on board really to learn about besides, you know, the, the trauma informed work. Yeah. That, thanks. Sandy. I mean, um, I mentioned Rudolf Steiner at the start, because obviously the school was founded on his principles, but he said, if you're not, actively supporting the development of another person, then you're not actually developing yourself. And, you know, and so all of us are really invested in professional development and training. So um, I'm very interested in attachment focused work. Um, I've trained in DDP and in PACE and different things. Um, you know, the NMT model that's quite um, important in, in, in America um, around, you know, the neurosequential model, Bruce Perry's work. Um, you know, very important work to do with, um, you know, brain mapping and that kind of stuff. So um, 
And, you know, Tim has also um, been involved in collaborative problem solving, which is mediation with children. Tim, did you want to mention that? Yeah, so collaborative problem solving approach basically developed um, at Massachusetts General Hospital in over there in Boston. Um, a way of reducing challenging behaviour, teaching sort of kids that they lack skill, not the will, and that they can build relationships to solve problems collaboratively. So that's been really helpful because, again, it, it's it, our whole approach needs to be relationship-based to support that. So um, it's just a different way of working with children to solve their problems rather than um, the old carrot and a stick, punitive behaviours type approach, really. Yeah, and I think for us, you know, it, I, you know, I want to embarrass Sandy, but Sandy's work has been hugely, hugely influential for us to really understand that, you know, organisations can become trauma organised, that organisations can get stuck, can get kind of themselves in difficult situations. Um, that was a massive leap forward for us. So in a sense, it's got to be a whole team around the child, but a whole team around your team. You've got to think about this is difficult work. I often say in training, listen, if if, if you think it's really easy, you're probably not doing it. <laughs> It's not it's not really easy, right? You're gonna get a lot back, but you mentioned it yourself, Sarah, the emotional labor, the you have to be invested. Um, and the more you put in, the more you get back. And so, you know, we want to demonstrate that we are interested in learning ideas and really putting those into practice. We've talked about, you know, in in our work with creating presence, this importance of uh, managing emotions and demonstrating empathy at all levels of the organization, right? Leadership, clinical, if it exists, educational or direct service, as well as for the people that we serve. Um, what do you see with regard to setting expectations for staff members around um, modeling emotion management and empathy and how do you make that explicit? What do you do when it goes wrong? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we're very much around self-care and we're big on, you know, well-being and um, and support in that way. What we're finding recently, certainly in the last six to 12 months, is that our staff are looking for the same support we give our children. So they're looking for treatment. They're looking for support plans. They're looking for a therapy. They're looking for a therapeutic approaches. They're looking for, so we've actually, our time in meetings that I've talked about where children benefit, staff want time in meetings. So we're doing them for staff now where they want to come in and talk about how they feel. And um, we offer a lot of reflective supervision. We've got a whole clinical therapy team that make themselves available to support other people doing this type of work because we do recognize that, um, that it can be exhausting. And we invite people to explore their own attachment histories. So what is the, is this about you or is this something that's coming from the child? And let's begin to think about that because um, we often parent how we were parented. So, so yeah, real big focus on that, real big focus on support. And um, we've got a lot of people with us that have been with us a lot of years. And there's a huge amount of tacit knowledge that kind of isn't written down anywhere. But uh, so uh, I, I guess, did you want to add to that, Tim? Yeah, I was just going to say in the classrooms that um, 
both children and staff, I guess, are with embedded well-being into our curriculum. Um, so, you know, the staff teach the children about their well-being and we kind of teach the staff about their well-being, which supports their resilience with this work, I guess. So that's the only thing I would add to what you said, Jake, was that we have to continually help our staff be professionally resilient to work in the way that we work, I guess. Yeah, and we're desperately trying to make sure that practitioners, anyone who works with children in the classroom or outside the classroom, they're considered really important people in the organisation. So people come to me talking about desks and offices, not really interested in that, okay? What can you do with children? What are your talents with children? And so we make sure that we look after those people, we pay them well, and we offer them a lot of support because they're working with the children. We're desperately avoiding the situation where they get promoted to a level of their own incompetence, that they that they move away from working with children. Some people are really talented and we want to keep them with the children, but also support them, elevate that status. Jake, you, you mentioned um, pay. Um, and I'm sure that Americans listening to this conversation will go, geez, they must only treat people that are really rich. And I know that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted you to be able to, to talk about the kind of support that your amazing program gets and you get where you, where it comes from, because it's not that you're treating all rich kids. No, it's not. I mean, uh, most of the children that come to us, like I said earlier, have really tried everything else. Um, and by the time they come to us, they've been through. I, I worked with a child once who had 57 foster placements and adoptive families and children's home combined. So by the time he came to us, you couldn't say anything to him without him packing his bags. He'd literally pack a bag and wait at the end of the road to get picked up by a taxi. And we kind of said, why are you stood here? And he said, this always happens. I upset people, I leave. That's what my life is. We said, not here, you know, come back. So, you know, we we really do take children that have gone through a tough time. And, um, you know, in some cases, it's they've been out of education for a long time. I mean, we one of our um, regulators, you know, we obviously get these reports come in. And one of the best reports we ever had was quoted children. And there was a child who said, it's okay to be different at this school. <laughs> it's okay to be different. And that was really great. That, you know, that was, I don't know, it was, it was great. So, so I guess, yeah, we get children from all over the country and they're challenging. It's not easy, but we, we kind of hang in there. And the government, um, the, the UK government supports this, right? That I mean, you don't yeah. have a, you don't have private, insurance companies that are doing this this is all coming through your social service and your education system yeah that's right so we get children from all over the country so um not insurance companies it's just local authority children who need who need our type of provision thanks so much uh to both of you and thanks for listening to creating presence we just heard from jake lucas and tim mcgarrick from novalis trust in the uk After the break, we're going to hear from Kathy Van Horn from Lakeside Global Institute. We'll be back after this message.
Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. If you would like to know more about trauma and adversity, Lakeside Global Institute offers a series of 101 workshops on a variety of topics related to trauma. Available workshops include Foundations of Trauma, The Skills of Trauma, Vicarious Trauma, Youth Trauma, Cultural Sensitivity and Trauma, Racism and Trauma, Trauma and Grief, Social Media and Trauma, and much more. Workshops are available live web-based and online. To learn more about Lakeside Global Institute workshops, go to lakesidetraining.org. Lakeside, your resource for trauma-responsive care. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Welcome back to Creating Presence. Sandy, Sarah, and their guests will discuss strategies and innovative practices for restoring our collective social health. Welcome back to Creating Presence. I'm Dr. Sandra Bloom, and I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Yanisi. And today we are continuing our focus on emotional wisdom and empathy in education by talking with Kathy Van Horn, who is Executive Vice President of Lakeside. Kathy is the founder of Neurologic by Lakeside, a curriculum for teachers that offers practical brain-based trauma-informed approaches to creating sustainable, supportive, and emotionally safe educational environments. So welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hi, Kathy. Um, so excited to hear about Neurologic um, and the work that you're doing. And to frame it, I think um, I want to share that Sandy and I use our understanding of the fight, flight, freeze, and fawn response, um, those reactions as sort of a foundation for thinking about how trauma, adversity, and stress um, affect our availability um, and capacity for learning and relating. So I'm curious, tell us about Neurologic and why you find it so important to use brain-based trauma-informed approaches in classrooms. Sure. So I've been at Lakeside a long time. Lakeside has four schools and we deal with students that are being removed from the public schools because of disruptive behavior for the most part. And so we've had the freedom for over 40 years to just do trial and error about what works for these students. Um, And a lot of what we were doing was working well. We were having a lot of success. We based it on safety and relationships and a lot of the things that you you guys talk about. But what we realized about 10 years ago is we were completely missing certain kids, um, that they were, no matter what we did, they were still so disruptive, we couldn't keep them in our programs that we would have to look for other schools to send them to. And But sadly, we had no suggestions. Like there was no other schools that were being successful with these students. So we started studying more and more about trauma, recognizing that most of our students had been through early childhood adversity and trauma. And we found that a lot of the people that came in and taught us about trauma, really our staff left more depressed. Like they weren't telling us what to do about it. They were just telling us how impacted our students were by trauma and with no 
no suggestions, no applications. And so our staff were like, you got to stop these people from coming because I'm getting <laughs> more, more depressed. Um, we found the work of Dr. Bruce Perry um, and the North Sequential Model. And we found in going through that, that there was actual things that you could do to change the brain that we had never known about, especially the lower brain um, interventions. Because by the time kids get to middle school and high school, which we are, we mostly expect that their lower brain is fully developed. And we know that relationships are important. And we know that reasoning and getting information in their cortex is important. But we were realizing that we really were completely missing interventions that were bringing healing to the lower levels of the brain. Um, things that help them regulate, um, things that were more, things that you would do with much younger children. But because of trauma, our students were so developmentally behind. And what we're finding now is most students are, that it was kind of, to me, it was so exciting to come back and just be like, we're going to add all these things to Lakeside School. And um, and it took me a while to realize it takes a, a while, like that all staff weren't as excited as I was. <laughs> you know, there was the 20% that jumped right in. And then there was the others that it just took time because teachers are pretty busy and pretty overwhelmed. And so changing your style and adding new things into your classroom for both students teachers and students can be a little bit challenging. But the exciting thing was we saw so much change just by the few things we added. And we did then begin teaching these this information to our students through the curriculum that we wrote and seeing an unbelievable change in students across the board. Um, and the public schools that send us students, which is about 30 different public schools, began asking us, like, what are you doing? Like, can you teach us? Like, where did you get this from? Where are these ideas? And so we began teaching those that sent us students. And it just exploded in the first two, three years where we have been asked to do training really all over the world in terms of what are the practical applications that you are using in your programs that really can change um, students' brains who have been traumatized. And so it's just been so exciting to watch, to see the change that it's brought about, to see the interest out there and the openness. I think that Schools are open when you can give them practical things to do that aren't time consuming. And what we, knowing that what our staff needed, we were able to present training that tell the, tell teachers things they can do immediately after leaving the training that aren't time consuming, that don't make terrible, you know, expectations above and beyond what they're already doing. So to me, that's been the most exciting thing about Neurologic is just to watch it grow and to watch people's responses. I can't tell you how many teachers have come up to me afterwards and have said, this is the best training I've had in 30, 40 years. And I'm not saying that to pump ourselves up. I'm just saying, when you give th people practical things to do and hope that they can actually change the brain, you know, like so much, I know in my education, way back in the dark ages, we, we pretty much learned, well, if you miss these, uh, these certain ages, pretty much there's no catching up. Like the students are just going to promise the rest of their lives. And now we know that really you can change the brain at any age, even in our older ages. Like even, you know, as I get into the older years, I'm like, thankfully I can still change my brain too, right? So it's just been really exciting to watch. So Kathy, what um, are the components in what you're talking about and describing is so impressive for the teachers. What are the components that the educators use to promote emotional safety in the classroom? What do, what do they actually do? So to feel safe in the classroom, the students obviously have to feel like they belong, that their needs will be met 
that they actually can succeed, um, that people care about them, um, so that there's a lot that's involved. I think one thing that we always did pretty well at is setting safe relationships, you know, safe boundaries for the students, knowing that staff cared about them. If students do not feel like teachers care, there's no way they're going to feel safe in the classroom. And so much about safety and the way educators promote safety has to do with our person, you know, who we are in the classroom, our emotions are contagious. So when staff are stressed um, or burnout or struggling, that's the emotions that are contagious to our students. But when staff feel um, in control, when staff feel good about themselves, when staff um, are able to take the time to recognize their impact and process their own emotions and regulate themselves, we really can create a safe environment for the students. But the other part of that as well is having things within the classroom period that actually meet the students' needs for regulation. Students, especially the younger students, were not meant to sit still all day, you know, at a desk, staring and listening to a teacher. And even by the time we get to high school, most of us as adults, when we go and present to adults, our, the adults can't sit still. Like they're standing, they're able to get up and go to the bathroom, they're able to fidget, you know, be eating, be drinking while we're presenting. But yet for students in school, we expect none of this, right? Like, so having the classroom structure set up that students can actually have things that regulate them, you know, can they have furniture that actually allows them to move a little bit? Some need rocking chairs. Rocking is huge to um, help the, the brain and underdeveloped brainstem. Um, it's hugely regulating. Some students just given a stand-up desk can make all the difference in the world because they're getting in trouble for standing all of the time when they need to stand, then sit, then stand, then sit. Some students just need to fidget with something, but they're getting yelled at for, you know, fidgeting. And so allowing the socially appropriate things to fidget with within the classroom uh, sometimes it's just a matter of the teacher stopping and doing brain breaks with students that allow them to get the movement that they need or the relational interactions that they need. It's it's a little bit like playing detective, which Tim and Jake had mentioned, you know, in their part, you know, to be able to kind of look at what's happening with the students and recognize what need is that meeting. And if what they're doing is really irritating, is there a way that I can help them get that need met in a more school appropriate way? So really recognizing and changing our perspective to this is what school's supposed to look like. And this is the developmental level students are supposed to be on when they get to my classroom, recognizing that that doesn't work anymore. Um, students are coming into us at all different developmental levels. Some are behind because of COVID. Some are behind because of trauma and um, ACEs. Um, and some are just behind because of technology and they text and don't talk to people anymore. Like there's so many things different today than when a lot of our um, teachers went through teacher education program or a lot of what teacher education programs are even teaching in terms of what works and doesn't work in schools. Mm. Interesting. You mentioned before that not everyone was as excited as you were um, when you discovered these possibilities for changing how classrooms could work. What are some of the barriers that you encountered or challenges um, in bringing this to fruition? And what would you recommend to others who might be interested in doing the same? So I think for myself, first of all, was recognizing the research on implementation that basically whenever you present to any group, you have the 20% that buy in, you know, there's another 20% that are like, I'm going to wait until they make me do it. You know, there's so many um, 
new things that come up in our schools, that there's kind of a new initiative every year. And a lot of teachers are like, I'm just going to wait to see if this passes. Like, I am tired. If I've been teaching for 20 years, I'm tired of a new initiative or a new thing that's expected every year, and and I'm going to wait for it to go away. So there, And then there was those in the middle um, that basically were like, I just need to see it working for somebody else. So they watched the early adopters and then, and then the students began asking for the things because the students saw it working as quickly as the early adopter te- or early adopting teachers did. And the students began saying to teachers, why don't you have a rocking chair? Or why don't you do brain breaks? Or I need to check my polls. Some feeling stressed. And the students began kind of demanding the things that were working for them from other teachers in a really positive way. So that to me is one hurdle to just recognize when you try something new that you need help with implementation. Just teaching something once isn't going to really allow teachers to change, even though we're teaching really practical information. That's why for Neurologic, we offer coaching as well as the training. So we offer the initial training, knowing that about 20% will buy in. But then we offer coaching and implementation videos that keep it going, that staff can come back and look at one small um, thing that they're interested in, like, I really want to know how to use fidgets, or I really want to know how to do brain breaks. And they can go deeper into that and, 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 and listen to others that have done it. And what are some of the, what's the ways to introduce it? What's the ways to structure it? How do you put parameters around it? What works and what doesn't? How do you use your own personality to make these work? How do you explain it to your students? There's there's a, there's a lot behind it that really when you have somebody coaching you through it or coaching videos that help you through it, it really helps teachers to make use of these things. Um, I think other barriers are, we talked about this a little little bit already, but it's the stress level of teachers these days. Like they're feeling so overwhelmed and some burn out and some of them just don't have the emotional energy to do one more thing or try something new. Um, And that comes down to teaching regulation to the staff as well. All the same things that regulate students regulate staff. And a lot of teachers these days, I know when we teach, they hate the term self-care because it's like, it's just one more thing you're expecting of me um, versus all these regulation interventions that we're teaching you for your students, they work for you too. And if you use them during the day and they don't take any more time, you can take deep breaths when you get stressed. You can grab a drink of water. You can stand and move around yourself. You can have something um, on your desk that you look at that brings you peace or laughter or joy. You know, there's, there's ways to use your senses, how you set up your environment that can help you regulate while you're teaching your students. But also you can model for your students the exact things we want them to learn. So just having a fidget in front of the room and telling the students what it does for you or stopping a class and saying, I don't know about you all, but I'm feeling stressed. Let's all take five deep breaths, you know, or getting up and doing a physical activity to release some of the cortisol that's that's going through everybody in the classroom, you know, because, you know, stress impacts us physiologically. We have to do something with that energy in order for it to go away. So that has been a huge part, a huge barrier in one way, but a positive in the other way that teaching staff how these things can work for them and make their life better is huge. Uh, Teaching them how to teach this information to the students. Like when the students learn this, because a lot of times we get annoyed at students that are developmentally behind, right? We're like, I learned to teach fifth grade math and these students aren't, but they're only on second grade and we're a little bit annoyed, but we know how to catch them up on math. But we get even more annoyed when their social skills 
are at a five-year-old level when they're supposed to be 13, or when their impulse control is at a five-year-old level when they're supposed to be 13. Impulse control in teenagers is much more annoying um, than it is when it's a toddler, but we know exactly what to do when it's a toddler. And the same thing is needed when it's a teenager. Like those skills are missing and we have to be willing to teach them. We have to be willing, and you can't teach them to the cortex. You can't teach these skills cognitively. You have to teach them by modeling and processing just like you would when you were working with your toddlers. Um, You need to look at what's missing, what are the skills, and find ways to model the relationships and the skills and the emotional um, talking about the emotions for students so that they can actually develop those skills and learn. And that that takes repetition. So we did a curriculum for the students because we found that the students were picking this up more quickly than our staff were at sometimes. <laughs> and so like teaching to the students how to regulate themselves, um, teaching the students about their stress response, teaching the students about how to co-regulate and even what relationships do and how to co-regulate with other relationships in a positive way rather than a negative way was huge. And we had so many students coming back to us being like, I use this on my job now. It kept me from cursing out my boss. And, you know, I told my mom about it and I told my girlfriend about it. And the students get really excited because a lot of them feel like their brains are messed up. And this is just the way they are. And they don't recognize the plasticity and their ability to change and grow. So just giving that hope to the students has been huge. And with that and the hope to the staff, like you can change brains. This is what we're here about. Um, We can help students change their brains. And that's what you really mean by brain-based. Yes. That's really incredibly powerful. So thank you very much, Kathy, for all that you've shared with us. We, We just heard from Kathy Van Horn. So join us next week to continue this exploration with Dr. Stephanie Covington, Robert Reed, and Al Sawyer to discuss criminal justice reform and trauma-informed practice through the lens of safety and social responsibility. You can reach us at creatingpresence.net or voiceamerica.com. So see you next week, and thanks again, Kathy. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Creating Presence. Join Sandy and Sarah next week for another informational episode. Until we talk again, check us out at www.creatingpresence.net and email us at info at creatingpresence.net. Have a beautiful week.